Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. This week on Gangry the Podcast, I talk with Jeremy Markovich. Markovich is a writer and columnist for Charlotte Magazine. His first story about a blind man who hiked the Appalachian Trail won several awards, including the National City and Regional Magazine Award for Personality Profile. He is also a contributor to SB Nation Longform and Our State Magazine, and an Emmy Award-winning producer at WCNC-TV. We're going to talk with him about two stories he wrote for SB Nation Longform. The first is a story about famed NASCAR racer Dick Trickle, who committed suicide earlier this year. The second is about base jumping, especially those who gather at the New River Gorge Bridge in West Virginia on the third Saturday in October every year to jump. As usual, we've linked to several of Jeremy's stories on our website. That's www.gangrythepodcast.com. We're here with Jeremy Markovich today. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Jeremy, you're notable, uh, at least for the podcast, because I think you're one of the first people that I've talked with uh, who has a background in television. Can you talk a little bit, a little bit about that, what you do? Yeah, well, I'm a uh, producer here at a, a television station in Charlotte, North Carolina, the NBC affiliate. And um, what I do, I, I've basically done just about a job in television at some point. Uh, when I got out of college at Ohio University, I, I went and became a photographer, job. Um, then I became a newscast producer, so I, I produced um, the morning shows and the evening shows, um, and, and, and I ended up, I, at some points I was a reporter as well. Uh, what I'm doing basically now um, is I'm not doing newscasts anymore. A newscast producer will basically uh, kind of go through all of the stories that are going on that day, figure out, you know, you, you kind of decide what goes in your show. You end up doing a lot of writing for that show. Um, and you, you figure out what order things go in, how, you know, what graphics you need to use, uh, transitions, kind of how you, where you need to take a break, where you should kind of, kind of where you need to go big, where you need to make kind of condense. Um, and so really putting together a, a newscast, uh, and a half an hour newscast is a lot like writing kind of a long story in the fact that you have a lot of different sort of scenes in that and that you have to kind of figure out how do you mash them all together. Um, obviously a newscast isn't as kind of cohesive maybe as a, as a story is, but it's, it still kind of gives you a lot of practice in writing, uh, in writing for the ear, uh, and also really just kind of learning how to, I don't know, when things kind of have to go together, how do you kind of take, how do you take two things that are, that are different and sort of maybe even tie them together? Can you, can't you? Um, and that sort of thing. So that's kind of what I'm doing. I was doing newscasts. Now I'm kind of working on longer form stories for the television station as well. Um, whether it's shooting them, uh, reporting them, uh, just kind of doing basically anything here that takes longer than a day is sort of what I'm in charge of now. Can you talk a little, a little bit about, I, I know um, a lot of people who have a TV background, um, I tend to think end up being very good narrative writers because they think in terms of pictures and scenes. 
Um, and so, and one thing I noticed in some of your stories, you have some very, very good scenes. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Does that help? It, it does. Um, the, I've talked about this a couple of times with, with some friends of mine about that work in television. And, and we, we kind of say there are so many things that you just get to point a camera at in television um, or you're, you're, you're shooting a sequence in television. So uh, if you're talking to somebody at their house, you, you don't want them just kind of sitting in a chair necessarily. You, you, you want them to be up doing kind of what they do at their house. Or you want them walking through the warehouse and pointing things out to you. Or you want them, you want them to be doing something because there's nothing kind of really, there's nothing kind of worse in television than somebody just sort of sitting there and not doing anything. Um, and so that helps kind of when, when, you, when, you're, when you're, you're looking for action a lot. You want things to be moving and you also kind of want the background to be important as well. And, and the interesting thing is, you know, I, when I'm out on stories, sometimes I will walk around with my iPhone taking, can't, taking pictures. And it's not necessarily because, uh, you know, they're going to be used in the final story. Very rarely are they. Um, but it's because there are certain things that you see and then you'll write down and then, and then maybe later you'll go back and take a look at that picture again and notice something that you wish you had written down in your notebook that you're just not you're not thinking of at the time. Whether it be you know if you, the color of the ornaments on a Christmas tree, or or you know the the color of things, the shape of things, uh, the way things are are lit. How you know where 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 the shadows are? What you know sometimes even what tree is that? I'm 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 terrible at identifying trees. Uh, so I'll, sometimes I'll just have to take a picture of the leaves to figure out what trees they are. And so those are the sort of things that having a picture on television, it just becomes part of the story. You look at it and you, you see, you see what, what the scene is. You don't have to tell anybody what it is. If you're good at what you do, you can show that. But when you're writing, it's still good to have that picture because then you can go back and later on when you're trying to put together a story, you can sort of think in scenes. You can think visually because you know, you're going to have to create that picture from nothing. Whereas in television, you basically are able to just show. How long have you been writing uh, long form uh, magazine type pieces? Uh, I started a, a couple of years ago. Um, I, I've been in television uh, since I graduated college in 2002. Um, and kind of on a lark, uh, there was a, a guy that I'd heard about in Charlotte. Uh, this is back in 2009. Uh I heard him on the radio, and he was a hiker who had finished the Appalachian Trail. He had done all 2,000-some miles of it, and he was blind, and he was from Charlotte. And so I heard an interview with him on the radio. Um, I, th- I was kind of fascinated by that, and, and I, I sort of made a, a, a pitch uh, that we ought to do at a TV station. And for one reason or another, we didn't, we didn't end, up, end up getting to it um, because he'd already come back. Um, it, it's, it's a much better, I guess, television story if you're with him on – the trail, if you're able to kind of show him out doing what he does. Um, so I had never written for a magazine before, and I uh, just sort of blindly sent out a note to a few editors, including uh, Rick Thurman, who is, was the editor at the time at Charlotte Magazine, um, saying, look, you have to believe me. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm in journalism. I'm, I'm legit. I, I work at a TV station. I, 
I've never written anything long form before, but I'd like to try and do something on this guy. I think he's got a great story. And he said, yeah, let's let's just give it a try. Why don't you write me a little bit? And so went and talked to him, did a bunch of interviews, started writing a little bit. And then he's like, keep going, keep going, keep going. And it ended up being, I, I forget what the length was now, but maybe 6,000 words on this blind hiker and how he had done the entire Appalachian Trail. And didn't really know what I if it was any good or, or, or what the deal was. And it ended up winning a couple of national awards, to my surprise. And so um, from then, I've been able to kind of do this sort of on my own time, uh, being able to kind of go out and find some of these stories that uh, I think deserve sort of a wider And luckily, I've been able to kind of go out and, and do that. I know one of those stories that you did back in July was a story on Dick Trickle, which was published uh, SB Nation long form. One thing I loved about this story is I think, uh, or actually one of the reasons I love this story is because I grew up on NASCAR uh, and dirt track racing in Ohio. So a lot of that stuff really rung true to me, uh, especially with the guys that I cheered on, you know, on Saturday nights at the races. I'm curious if you had a similar background or if not, what drew you to that story? You know, it's funny. I, I didn't. And, you know, being here in Charlotte, uh, I'm, this is the epicenter of, of, of NASCAR, of, of big time racing. Um, and I grew up actually in northeast Ohio um, and I, there was short track racing up there. But I never really kind of I never was never really into that um, for one reason or another. I, I was kind of more of a, of a baseball and, and hockey fan. And really what drew me into this was the fact that I, I think I had had this this the similar experience as a lot of people who grew up watching sports center in the 90s and there was always this sort of running joke on sports center about dick trickle that they just would mention his name because they thought his name was funny and so they would mention no matter where he finished they would say you know dick trickle finished 21st you know at the end of every race and so that really was how i knew about Dick Trickle. I didn't really know anything else about him until uh, recently when I found out that he died. And we, it, there was sort of a, it just kind of came out of nowhere because we, I, I got a, a release from the sheriff's department over in Lincoln County where we lived and that it said that he died. And I went and kind of was like shocked by that. I, I kind of lost track of him and, and sort of looked up all these, these, these stories about his life that were kind of coming out, uh, you know, the, that day and the day after. And, and I ended up going to um, the newspaper here has a lot of them have like a guest book where if somebody dies, you can leave their condolences. You can read a short obituary and leave the condolences. And when somebody famous, when something happens to somebody famous uh, that has touched a lot of lives, you, you, you do kind of get that arm's length sort of response from people. That, oh, I loved watching you on TV or I, I, I love watching you play or, or I love this or love that. And even in an athlete's case, you know, maybe I got an autograph from you, you know, or I, 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 I remember meeting you at a certain point. And with Dick Trickle, it was so interesting because the stories that people were leaving on this guest book were so much more intimate. Uh, they were, I remember seeing you out, taking your trash out uh, to the curb, and you were always out there and you wait, you'd wave hello. Or I remember dropping off UPS packages to your house. I remember, you know, hanging out with you after, after a race and having a beer with you and, and having a smoke. Uh, I remember there were all these sort of like stories that you would remember 
that, that people were kind of from all over the place coming in and telling about Dick Trickle as if Dick Trickle was a member of their family. And, and so that's what kind of got me going that maybe there's something else here that I'm not realizing. Maybe he had a bigger impact than just being mentioned on SportsCenter. And that's what led me to sort of dig into his life. And the more I dig, dug into it, everybody has everybody that knew Dick Trickle, they all have their same kind of core stories, but they all have unique stories about him and about the way that he impacted their lives and, and, and touched them. And, you know, whether it was Kenny Wallace sort of making him uh, the example, he followed Dick Trickle's example sort of in life and on the track to guys who just happened to be on another race team and, 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 and remember him coming in, having a few beers at six in the morning and, and being the life of the, and being the life of the party because everybody wanted to just talk racing with him because he, he'd won so much. He was a legend in short tracks. So this story to me was really about discovering who the man was and then discovering this, this whole other side of racing that is out there. That is not just NASCAR and that you can be a successful racer, even though you never win a NASCAR sprint cup race. Can you talk about the reporting on this story? Like, um, kind of where did you start? And then how did you piece together his history? Uh, who were you able to talk to? Uh, I was talked about six or seven different people. There are, um, the interesting thing about Dick Trickle is that uh, a lot of this was a kind of gathering. It was a lot of sort of finding the pieces of, of his story that are all out there in different places, uh, that, you know, talking to different people. But nobody has really ever written sort of a beginning to end uh, in-depth kind of look at his life. Uh, there's just so many dick trickle anecdotes that come out. And so when I started, it was a matter of going beyond what was already out there. You had to mention that too, but it's also these little stories that people had, um, whether they were um, – I, I talked to Humpy Wheeler, who is was the president of Charlotte Motor Speedway for a number of years, and is just just fantastic, and is very is very honest about about racing and 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 about about sort of where the business of racing is going and what racing should be and the way that it was. And he's kind of an old school guy that believes that uh, it's a little too sanitary now. And 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 he's he and he was serious when he said that Dick Trickle was one of the greatest racers of all time. He's up there with AJ Foyt and Richard Petty and, 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 and just the biggest names that you can think of. And, and every time I would talk to somebody, I would, I, when I talked to him, I said, well, who else do you know that knew Dick Trickle real well? And he said, well, there's a Catholic priest up in Wisconsin. Got to give him a call. Uh, he's, he's a racing photographer. He's written a couple books on racing. Um, Father Dale Gruba. And so I gave him a call and talked with him for a while, read part of his, um, books and, and some of the stories that he'd done. Um, had gone out and just basically read everything I possibly could. I had read uh, stories that people had posted on blogs and called them and asked them about about him. Uh, I, I, his PR guy had a great posted a great remembrance, and I called him up and asked him, you know, what what, what can you tell me? And he was the one saying that you know he was trying to put together a TV show for Dick, you know about Dick Trickle, kind of being a fish out of water in New York. And so everybody I talked to kind of layered on top of of the next person. And the interesting thing was there's a lot of a lot of things about him that I think there's kind of a good reporting tool that once you start hearing the same stories over and over and over and over again, that maybe you've got it, that you've kind of you, you, you sort of have the essence of what you're looking for. And with him, I would hear the same stories over and over again. 
But then everybody had a completely different story about him, about about the way he was or his attitude or, you know, there was a, a, a story about, you know, that, that had been in, in Sports Illustrated about, you know, the, how he'd won 1,200 races. Well, I talked to a guy that said, well, I, I really tried to chronicle all of his races and it's hard to do. It might be really around 1,000, but here is every race that I could possibly find that he's ever entered since the mid-60s. Uh, and, and it's just, it's, it was finding a lot of those guys and even getting to Kenny Wallace, who um, I talked to maybe the longest out of anybody um, because he was maybe the closest to um, to Dick Trickle. I, I, I think it was, reporting-wise, it was reading as much as I possibly could about from every different source about him and then talking to people and kind of having that floating in the back of my mind and sort of trying to talk to the right people who knew him in different ways, either from a business standpoint, you know, his, his PR guy, a fellow racer who looked up to him, uh, his brother who, uh, you know, grew up with him and, you know, was kind of at arm's length, but uh, but still was able to, to, to say what kind of a guy he was. Everybody kind of fit together. And so there's all these different sources of, of information. And it was really just kind of pulling all together in sort of one big cohesive nugget. I know um, you didn't talk with any of his direct family members, but I'm assuming you tried. And kind of what was their, I guess, response when you came to them and said, I want to do a story? Um, there was not much of a response. Um, I had I'd actually driven out to Lincoln County where, where uh, his, you know, his wife lives and actually his family lives out there still. On the, they all live kind of in the same spot. And, you know, I actually thought about, you know, sat in the car and thought about, do I, do I just walk up to the door and introduce myself and saying, and say, I'm doing a, a, a story about, um, you know, your, your, your father or, uh, you know, your husband. And I, I decided against that just because it's, it's hard. I, I had made that, I had kind of gone out there before I had really talked to anybody. I was going to go talk to them first and decided that I didn't really want to, uh, really kind of push what has to be a tough subject. Um, not only losing, uh, their, you know, a loved one, but losing them to suicide. Um, so I kind of held back for a while, talked to a lot of other people. And when I ended up, I emailed Vicky, his daughter and ended up calling, um, his son, Chad, who were very, and Chad was very nice, but was very much saying that, you know, that's I appreciate the call, but we're just not really we're not really talking. And 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 it is true, as I mentioned in the story, they were kind of done with it. Uh, they he was a he was a private guy. Um, they weren't about to start going out and start selling commemorative T-shirts, commemorating his life. Um, they're 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 done. And so you know, Vicky never emailed back. Chad was very polite, but said no. And and I I. Even though I never got an email back from Vicky, I kept on sort of emailing her along the way, letting her know my progress in the story and about what I was trying to do, about how I was trying to sort of show a side of her father that maybe a lot of people didn't know about kind of all the accomplishments, that the things that he had achieved that had kind of been swept under the rug because he never won in NASCAR's highest circuit. Um, and even when the story was done, emailed a copy of the, the link to the story, but... Um, they, for one reason or another, they're, they're very private and nicely declined to talk. Yeah, I think the thing I like about the story is it's not really necessarily about his death or even how he died. 
Um, and in that way, it reminded me of a lot of the feature obits that Jim Sheeler writes, or, or at least wrote at one point in time. Was that what you set out to do, or did you set out to find out why he actually ended up ending his life? Well, when I set out, I actually set out to do a story more about his pain because that was the, the sort of the, the the phantom in the room about why he had killed himself. I think it took a lot of people by surprise. And my brother is a doctor, and, and I had talked with him a little before I started writing the story and sort of re- researching the story. And he, he says, you know, pain is this huge industry in, in, you know, in, the, men, in the medical community. There's, there's so much, so many people have some sort of pain, and it's whether they're able to tolerate it. And it, as a doctor, you have to be able to treat it and, and make sure you're not really masking the symptoms of what's really going on. You really need to figure out what is causing it. And, you know, from what I had read up, up into the, up and before I started really kind of diving into it, he had, he had had this, this kind of phantom pain. And I had kind of set out to sort of figure out to do more of a story about what causes pain and how people deal with the pain and and what it can lead a, a rational person to do because you know being I don't even want to pretend to, to know what it's like to be in a situation where you're dealing with pain every single day and you don't know how to solve it and you don't know what to do next and obviously he was a very private person he didn't complain and and so it became very hard to do that story uh, as much as I wanted to, I tried to kind of address it at the end of the story about why he ultimately killed himself. Um, and the more I started talking to people about who he was, that became more fascinating to me. It wasn't so much how he died, um, but the way that he lived. And when I had talked this over with Glenn Stout, my editor. We had talked about a way to present the story. Uh, most stories kind of come... You know, if you're doing a, a, a maybe a, an obituary or, you know, you're telling the story, they kind of go in a linear fashion. You were maybe, you know, you were born, you grew up here, you were raised this way, you went to school here, or you started off doing what ended up being your career. You became good at it. There's a sort of arc that starts, you know, from when you're born to when your career peaks to when maybe you go into retirement and then, and then you know, you're to the end of your life. And with him, we actually decided to tell the story backwards, um, sort of starting at the end of his life, uh, where he, you know, where he basically is sort of the way that we know him, uh, the way that he was remembered up until that point, being sort of the, the, the good old boy who smoked in his car, who was just, you know, beloved but never won anything. And then as you start going backwards, he actually gets better in a way. Uh, you know, as you start going backwards, then he wins Rookie of the Year. Then he becomes just the most incredible short track racer ever. He, and, 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 and then he decides to make the decision that it's going to change his life. It's kind of an interesting way of looking at his life because, you know, you don't – usually it kind of goes the other way. When people, athletes, famous athletes retire, they kind of hit their peak maybe and then drop off a little bit and that's it. With him, he maybe hit his peak early. And then sort of enjoyed the time that he had in NASCAR. He wasn't really trying to prove anything at that point. He was really just just happy to race because somebody was going to give him a ride. Can you talk about the ending of the story? When did you realize that you were going to end in the cemetery? And I'm curious, like, what it was like. Did you know when you were in the cemetery and you saw kind of the the road in the cemetery that that was going to be the ending? Um, I didn't. Um, the, the funny thing was that this going to the cemetery – 
you know, I've done I've done a lot of stories where I've been able to, you know, go out and talk meet with people and kind of see what they do and interact with them. With this story, every interview that I did was on the phone, um, so it took a little bit longer, and I needed a little bit more description um, from some of the people that I was talking to because um, I just wasn't there in person to see. It, it becomes kind of harder to see um, to talk to them when you're you're not sitting across from them. Uh, but with, with 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 this, this is actually the very first thing that I did. Is that I, I was actually flying in from somewhere. I was at the airport in Charlotte, uh, it, which is a little bit closer to where he's buried. So I got in my I got my car, drove out there, and um, really had to kind of walk around and look for his grave. And uh, when I found it, uh, I sort of was I took a picture of it, looked at it, saw all these little things on it, but it was just a regular grave on a hillside. Um, and and kind of did a 360 to see what the place was like, if anybody was there. And it was just kind of a very quiet scene. And walked across, when I drove across the street to the gas station to, add, to talk to some people in there about, did they know that Dick Trickle was, was across the street? And they said they, they really hadn't even realized it. Um, and honestly, the, the, the oval, I didn't actually ever realize it was an oval until... I was just kind of messing around looking for the place on Google Earth and saw that it was an oval, saw a satellite image of the oval that was there um, and realized that I had actually been driving around on this small concrete oval at, at the uh, at the cemetery. So I but as far as coming to an ending, I, I, I knew pretty early on um, once I started talking to people that I wanted to bookend the story with with the suicide and. Where, where he's buried, because I, I thought it was very fitting that, you know, a regular guy is sort of buried in a regular place with a regular headstone in a regular cemetery that has a gas station across the street. It's, it, it really, it, it, it's, there's no, he, he, in death, he is sort of as he lived, which is just sort of a, a regular guy who happened to be just phenomenal behind the race car. Let's move on uh, to your the, your most recent story that was on SB Nation long form. Uh, it ran in November, and it's about base jumping from the New River Gorge Bridge. I'm curious, as I was reading this, I was wondering how much did you know about base jumping before going into the story? Uh, th- I knew a little bit more about base jumping uh, than I did, honestly, about Dick Trickle when I started this. Uh, I had My first television job was in West Virginia, and I had gone, um, gone to Bridge Day before, which is the event... Uh, uh, where all the base jumpers uh, kind of meet and, and jump off the New River Gorge Bridge in West Virginia. I had gone to that in 2002 and actually did a, a, a television story about it. And um, it the, the, the sell on it for me, uh, what really got me interested in, about going back was uh, there's no, you know, base jumping is sort of this stealth thing that, you know, you kind of by the, you know, you, you sneak around by the cover of night, you climb up a tower when nobody's looking, you break into a building and get on the roof. You do this sort of private thing to do this, this spectacle that, uh, you know, where you do, you, 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 you jump off and, and it's very elusive, I should say. That's the best way I should put it. And here, uh, it's, it's a factory. Uh, there are people jumping off every 20 seconds or so. And so, that always fascinated me because it's an incredible thing. I remember being on the platform the, the first time I was there and I was talking with a guy who had a, who, you know, had a, a base rig on and we were kind of just chatting, making small talk. And somebody at the end of the platform goes, Oh, Hey dude, you're up. He goes, he goes, okay, you had a problem. 
over the side. I'm like, holy crap. Whoa, 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 whoa. Like that guy, that, that just blew my mind. That's that, you know, you could be standing here talking to somebody one second and the next second they just jumped off a bridge right in front of you. Um, so that's kind of what got me fascinated in it, um, by it. And I'd always wanted to come back and do a story on it. And, uh, I'd called my editor and, and, and made that pitch and he said, yeah, why don't you go up there and check it out? So I knew a little bit about base jumping and the culture of it, but not really about, uh, not a ton about it. Did you go into the story knowing specifically what you wanted to write about, or did you kind of go up and say, kind of take the, the idea of, let's see what I can find? Um, it was a little bit of both. Um, usually when I sit down to write a story before I, I, before I sit down to actually start working on a story, I will read as much as I possibly can about everything connected to whatever it is I'm writing about. And I had actually read a lot about, you know, why to the point of why they built the bridge, um, and when they built it and, looking up who the first person to jump off was and reading as many stories about bridge day and, and read about people jumped off without a parachute. They tried to kill themselves by jumping off the new river gorge bridge. I'd read about, you know, what it means, uh, the festival means to the town and what it means. I'd read pretty much everything I possibly could. And I, I thought to myself that it was going to be sort of this, this big spectacle. I thought it was gonna be more about the place. And as I got up there, um, I had some people in mind that I would want to talk to. I talked to some folks before I, go- I had gone up who kind of steered me in the right direction saying, you know, you, there's, there's an 84 year old guy that's jumping off. You might want to talk to him. There's a guy going off in the wheelchair. You might want to go hang out with him. Um, but really when I got up there, it kind of had changed. I, my, my perspective changed because they're just happy to be jumping off anywhere. They see this as a, as a stepping stone to maybe a little bit more, legitimacy and so it became more about the idea of what base jumping is less so than the fact that it's in west virginia um and just because if there was a big bridge uh, that was accommodating to them in you know virginia or north carolina or you know georgia uh then that's that's where the story would be um it's it's not necessarily that west virginia did anything special they just have the bridge, and, and somebody, you know, thirty some years ago realized that we ought to let people jump off it. That would get huge. Pe- that would get tons of people to come in and check out our bridge. Um, so it became less about the place and more about the people. Once I got up there, what was your game plan once you got there? Were you just going to talk to as many people as possible and see who you could find? Yeah, I drove up on a on a uh, Friday morning and got there about noon. And when you get to the the, the Holiday Lodge hotel in Oak Hill, West Virginia, which is coincidentally the, the place where Hank Williams Sr. died. Um, that's what it's known for anyways. The, uh, the, when you walk in the hotel, it's just sort of your regular hotel. They moved everything out, and, and there are just base jumpers, just in rigs and parachutes and everything laid out all over the place. And I had just walked in, walked around for a while. I didn't really walk in and start talking to anybody right away. I just kind of walked in, sort of listened to people sort of saw what they were doing and sort of just, just try to get what was going on first before I sat down and talked to anybody. Um, because I know about base jumping. I am by no means a base jumping insider. Um, you know, I had to be taught how you pack a rig and why you do it in this in the way that you do it. And, and you know, what, what challenges you have at a bridge versus off of a tower or a building. 
and I just tried to walk around and get as much as, as I possibly could. And finally, when I, I felt like I had a grasp of sort of what it was about, and it took me to be like 10, 20 minutes, then I went over and, and, and talked to somebody that was, you know, packing a, packing a rig. And, and he was uh, from Montreal, was happened to be wearing an Expos hat, and they love that. So I started talking to him, um, who introduced me to uh, Bertrand, who was the man who uh, jumped with Lonnie, the, who was in the wheelchair, and it kind of went from there. And so I, I, I started talking to them and then walked over and started talking to some other guys who were sitting next to them and, and just happened to be just, just kind of hung out as much as I possibly could. There were a lot of times where I just watched and sort of listened to them and just sort of was really a fly on the wall because there's so many people there that are walking around. You don't really necessarily stick out maybe like you would in other places because there are just so it's so diverse. Um, and, that's kind of how I ended up being there. I was talking to a couple guys when the one guy walked in, threw down his, his rig, and it's full of thorns because he had jumped off a bridge and landed in a bush. So um, I basically that that was how my reporting started. And from there, I knew most of my reporting was going to happen on, on before and after because on bridge day itself, um, everybody's all business. Everybody kind of shows up. They've got their game face on. Their mind is on the jump. Uh, they're they're very very focused. They're you know for, for as wild as they can be, before and after when they're doing it, they're very much focused on that one thing. And so when you talk to people where they're in that state, they're not really they kind of give you the the, the cliched responses. So I knew it was gonna be important to talk to as many people before and after as I possibly could, and leave the middle towards just observing and taking pictures and and trying to kind of just figure out what, what the spectacle meant to me and then before and after figuring out what it meant to them. Yeah. There were so many interesting characters in the story. I imagine at the jump itself, how did you decide who to focus on and how much time to spend with each person? Because that seems like that would have been the most difficult part, how, focusing on the right person. Cause it seems like there are so many people there. I figured it out. Uh, Mo Valletto was the, was the guy that I decided to focus on just because he was the one guy that when he walked around, people would just – they knew him. They flocked to him. They wanted to like hear him tell stories. They wanted to hear him kind of tell how it, really, how it really is. And I knew pretty early on that I wanted to talk to him just because everybody wanted to talk to him. And he wasn't somebody that uh, – I guess outside of base jumping, you might know, but inside of base jumping, he is one of the most respected guys that you're going to meet. And um, I knew from early on that I wanted to talk to him and focus on him because he's sort of your, he's sort of the conscience of base jumping about what it should be and what it shouldn't be. And it should be, you know, he, he does it because it's just, you know, to him, it's sort of this, this rush, this beautiful thing. It's not about, I'm going to jump off of the camera and then show, and, and then I'm going to get my video that I can post to YouTube. So later on, I can show to you how awesome I am. That's not his. That's not his mo at all. Um, so he kind of comes this father figure to a lot of these base jumpers. And then with everybody else, it was I, I knew it was going to be sort of bits and pieces, um, and it was a matter of making those bits and pieces work. So I opened. I I, I could not figure out for the life of me how I was going to open the story. I, I think I had maybe tried three or four times to to come up with something that I thought worked. And and I think at the beginning, it, it, I ended up talking, sitting there, sort of talking briefly to a couple of guys um, about, you know, one guy was making his second base jump, the one was making his first. They were both standing on the bridge a few hours before they were going to do it. 
and and I talked to them for a bit, but then I just kind of hung with an earshot and listened to them and kind of listened to their conversation and you know, and then talk to them again. And, and, and that sort of became the opening of this sort of real conversation that these guys had, that they were, they were all about it. They were trying to be macho. One guy's trying to be macho. The one guy is just scared. Um, and that's sort of the, the back and forth between, between a lot of these base jumpers, you know, it's, it's, it's this, it's this macho thing that you can do, but it's also this very scary thing that you can do. And, um, and Mo showed that it can be beautiful. And everybody else sort of filled in the gaps for me of, of sort of these voices of a guy that was there, just, just there to party. Um, one guy that I talked to who's from Alabama, basically, I talked to him for a while, actually, but basically in the, in the final draft, he just exists to kind of pop up from time to time and say it could be worse. Um, so I just try to get as many little voices in to sort of tell as many different sides of what this event means because it's this giant nebulous thing that means so many different things to so many different people. Um, you know, you want to have your father figure that sort of is, is the most respected guy, but then from there, trying to, trying to get the bits and pieces in of, of different voices to kind of fill in all the gaps to try to get sort of not just the heart of it, but also kind of what it means on the outside as well. Well, it's a great story. Uh, Jeremy, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk with me uh, about your stories. Oh, thank you for having me. I've been talking with Jeremy Markovich. He's a writer and columnist for Charlotte Magazine. He is also a contributor to SB Nation Longform and Our State Magazine and an Emmy Award-winning producer at WCNC-TV. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry, that's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is now available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter at Gangry Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is a production of the Journalism and Digital Media Department. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.